Hi, this is Dan Calandrello from Seton Hall. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Great station. Tune in. They're great guys. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Good morning, Tommy. Another, br- I don't even know if it's bright and sunny. I'm still in the garage. <laughs> it's always bright and sunny in San Diego, Mike, but I'm going to cheer you up today, Mike. We're taking the summer interview sessions to a different place today. We've had former players. We've had beat writers. We've had announcers. Today, we're going to bring someone that was on the staff during potentially the best period of time for the Seton Hall Pirates in the modern era. I'm going to sit there and say I'm excited. Like, I always say I'm excited, right? When are we not excited for a guest? But we have Bruce Hamburger coming on, one of the right-hand guys to PJ Carlissimo during the magical run in 1989 on his staff for eight years tommy you know i'm a nuts and bolts you know get into the intricacies of the game bruce was the x's and o's guy he was in charge of the live scouting for pj back in the day they didn't have hours upon hours of film to break down they were actually at the games on the road scouting the other team there was a lot of key points throughout those runs and big moments that either had the game won or maybe we didn't we didn't get over the top. I'm really intrigued to talk to Bruce and ask him about the strategies and decisions and how they went into some of those moments. So, yeah, I, I'm really excited for this one. And it's going to be a different point of view here. You know, Mike, it's not going to be on court. He's going to be someone that's sitting on the bench, watching it from a different perspective, going into that video room, taking a look, breaking down video. I'm excited. This is going to be a fun time to talk to somebody. Special thanks to Pete Fabiano for introducing us to Coach Hamburger. All right, let's do it. He was an assistant coach at Seton Hall University under P.J. Carlissimo for nine years, beginning in 1986, during the era when the Pirates won two Big East tournament titles. Two Big East titles made six NCAA tournament appearances, including the 1989 run to the championship game led Kane University as a head coach for 11 years and has been an assistant on staff set. St. Peter's, Caldwell College, the former Trenton State, and the New York Liberty of the WNBA. Currently, he is the associate head coach at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Bruce Hamburger. Coach, how are you today? Doing great, guys. Pleased to be with you. Thanks for joining the show again. Appreciate it. No, my pleasure to be with you guys. How are things right now with you and your family in relation to the coronavirus pandemic? We're trying to be sensitive to everything going on in the world before we dive into the history lessons of basketball in, in, in your life. 
Yeah, we're doing well. Thank you. Thanks for asking. And, and I hope you guys and, and everyone listening is, is doing well. Yeah, it's, it's a challenging time, obviously. I, I live in New York City, so we're certainly right in the, in the heart of it. But, um, you know, we're, do, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Well, kind of transitioning away from the pandemic and kind of getting back to kind of current college basketball news, Tom and I found it interesting that Seton Hall just announced this past week that FDU has officially been added to their schedule as both programs have come to an agreement for the 2000-2021 season. Now, this now marks the third time in the past seven years in which the programs will face off. How important is it for these lower D1 programs to maintain these in-state rivals with programs like Seton Hall and Rutgers? I think it's it's very important. New Jersey is such a great state for college basketball, as you guys well know, and for for a relatively speaking small state to have, I think we have eight or nine Division One programs within the state. So, for us, it's terrific from an FDU standpoint to be able to play a Seton Hall or play a Rutgers. We we play Princeton almost every year, so to to play the better programs in the state is is terrific. And for us, it's a it's a win-win. You know, we we've played him a couple times. We're 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 all good friends with with Kevin and his staff. So there's a good working relationship amongst us. And so you know, we're looking forward to it. So speaking of a win-win, how gratifying was it to pull off back-to-back upsets at Rutgers at Seton Hall back in the fall of 2013? Yeah, that was special to say the least. Um, you know, we we were just taking over the program and trying to get things going, and and you know, you, you clearly when you inherit a new program, you have the ups and downs of just trying to instill your culture and your beliefs on your players. And you just don't know that first year or two, you're just, you're just trying to keep your head above water. And then all of a sudden to have in a week beat beating, you know, two, the two best programs in New Jersey every year, you know, on most. No, no, coach, coach, the best program. And then the second best program. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of implied. So, uh, I, I didn't. I didn't feel with you guys. I needed to say that, or anyone listening. I, I think everyone will know that. But you know, yeah, it was huge. It just gave us a a, a great boost of credibility for helping to bring back FDU basketball to a level that it's been in the past. And you know, just the exposure, the opportunity. You know, e- even just a general fan who who sees the score, you know, on the ticker at night at ESPN or whatever, said, "Wow, like that's that's special." So yeah, that that was that was huge for us. And when Fairleigh Dickinson plays schools like this, obviously, obviously they're the underdog in these matchups. And kind of staying in that underdog vein, you know, when we spoke a couple weeks ago trying to schedule out this interview, you mentioned that you grew up in my hometown of Maplewood, and that was real exciting. And you'd walk over to campus and sneak into Walsh for these games. Now, question for you, all those years prior, did you ever think you were going to be on a Big East coaching staff in your mid-20s? prepping scouting reports on how to slow down powerhouse programs like Georgetown, Syracuse, St. John's? No, I'd be, I'd be lying to sit here and tell you, yeah, that was part of my, my plan as a coach. I mean, I knew I wanted to coach and to just have the opportunity to work for nine years at a program. Like you said, when as a little kid, I would, you know, jump on my bike and ride over and, Little, you know, and you guys know Walsh. There's all these little side doors and doors in the basements and hallways. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd 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 walk down to our academic to Robin Cunningham's office, our academic advisor, when I worked there, and her 
her office was down in the basement. And I, you know, you have a flashback of, oh man, I'm running down this hallway as a little kid, hoping no one sees me so I can get up into the gym and, and either go shoot or go watch, go up into the bleacher, or, you know, the balcony and watch practice and hide behind a pillar that hope no one sees me. So <laughs> it, it was a special time for me, obviously. And again, just, just cool to be as a, as a young kid loving the game and it, being around it and going to games when the big East was first starting and, you know, you're, you're watching him play St. John's and Georgetown and Walsh, never mind, you know, the Meadowlands and 20,000 people, but you're, you're in there where, you know, 3000 people and you're on top of each other and there's no room. And it just, you guys know the, the atmosphere in Walsh when it's crowded is a, is a pretty cool place to play basketball. And as a, as a young kid where you're impressionable and, you know, I thought I was watching the, the best basketball game in the century every night. Cause it was just such a, just a unique experience for a young kid. And, and again, to be able to grow up to eventually coach there was, you know, not many people have that chance, obviously. Well, for those who don't know, you're renowned for being a phenomenal X's and O's guy throughout your career. What I find interesting is that first season on the Seton Hall staff, it's 1986, and the NCAA didn't actually universally implement the rule change of the three-point shot until that season. And that season, Rick Pitino and Providence really embraced the rule change, and they take the three-point shot all the way to the Final Four. I'm interested in finding out how challenging was it to adjust to a team like theirs and the overall three-point shot when you're kind of prepping that scouting report yeah it was um you know he was ahead of himself in in terms of innovation and and analytics you know everyone talks about analytics today and he he figured and i'm not going to be precise with the math but he figured that okay if you're you shoot 32 percent from three is the same value as shooting 40 from two so the math made sense to him early he was a huge skill development guy. You know, his players always got better throughout their college careers. And back then there wasn't, nowadays we, we were limited to 20 hours a week in the gym. You know, the stories, what he used to do with his guys are legendary. You know, they'd be in there six o'clock before class, skill workout. They'd come back late morning between class, weight training. They'd have practice for two and a half, three hours They'd go eat, study hall. They'd come back 10 o'clock at night, skill workout. So, you know, their, their guys just got better. And, and obviously the biggest testament to, to, to his skill development back then was Billy Donovan, who, you know, was a pudgy, out of shape, didn't play, was, was going to transfer to a Division II school. And then all of a sudden he, and obviously Billy was the guy who did the work, but just their staff did such a great job of development and just changed the game, you know, where, where now, you know, you, you had to guard the three point line, you know, transition defense. It used to be run back to the paint. Now you had to run the cover to three and, you know, obviously the guy's a hall of fame coach and he, he just, he figured it out before everyone else did. Coach, you weren't alluding that Rick Pitino might be kind of pushing the NCAA on hours and restrictions relative to what his players could do. You weren't you weren't going there, were you? Nah, nah. Back then, there, were, there was nothing to push. There were no rules. You could, you could be in the gym as much as you want. You didn't have to have a day off. You could. It was a different time. You know, the rules have uh, the rules have changed. I'm just surprised Mike didn't mention that Billy Donovan took that senior season and, and turned it into a cup of coffee with the New York Knicks because Mike tries to put that in there on every podcast that he can. 
Yeah, he did. I mean, again, God, God bless him. You know, he, he really became a good player. Uh, you know, I see every once in a while they do a feature on him and something on TV and they, and they show the video clips of him playing. And it's, you know, people who, who did not see him play don't realize how dominant a college player he was. Now, again, NBA was a stretch, you know, defensively for him. But as a college player, boy, I, I don't know if there's many guys who have had a better senior year than he's had in, in, in terms of their overall career. Now, I saw a documentary, and what was really interesting to me is the takeaway that Billy Donovan finally bought in, right? So Coach was able to kind of develop his player, but not everybody always kind of gets to that breaking point. Like you said, Billy was thinking about transferring, and he finally has his breakthrough and just becomes this elite player. And that's interesting because that's what Seton Hall is known for nowadays with Kevin is this player development, the buy-in, you know, play the system. So, And you had to get pushed. And I thought that was interesting because Seton Hall needed to kind of turn that corner so you're on the staff that coincides with Seton Hall making it back to the postseason play for the first time since 1977. So the team needed to be pushed. They needed to kind of figure it out. Where were the signs that this team was starting to figure it out? Um, it's, it's a great question. And it's funny. You say turning the corner. We, we had shirts that year that, that PJ got made up from Nike that literally around the way it was, and I forget the logo, but around the waist of the shirt, was the same turning the corner and you know it 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 just i think was a group that stayed together experienced kids they kind of took their beatings earlier in the big east you know obviously as, as we all know the big east was so dominant back then and such a good league that you know to be young in the big east was going to be a struggle and eventually those guys became juniors and seniors and just went through the nightly battles of getting better and you know figuring it out and and to your point buying in and and just understanding that if 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 we do the right things we're we're going to get there and but again it it's the game was different and then you you had to be old you had to be seniors and juniors with experience very difficult back then at any any level any league but especially the big east to win with freshmen and sophomores now, Mike mentioned Mark Bryant. This wasn't the first time you had the opportunity to coach Mark Bryant. Back in Mark's senior year, you were an assistant coach on that Columbia team that made it to the Group 4 Finals, I believe. And eventually, that entire team was inducted to the Columbia High School Hall of Fame back in 2006. Now, did you think he would ultimately have this kind of an impact on a college program when you were an assistant back in Columbia High School? Each year, I felt that more so, yes. I mean, as a sophomore, you could tell that to your to, to the point in the previous conversation, if, if the buy-in was there, if he figured it out, if he worked at it, if he got in the weight room and developed, that he had a chance. Because, I mean, just a, a big, skilled, tough, hardworking kid that just keep got, kept getting better and better and better. So, I mean, you could see it coming every year was, was better and better. And by the time he was a senior in high school, you know, he was a legitimate top 50 player in the country that I don't, I don't remember, but I, I, I would say without exaggerating, he probably had 40 or 50 offers and it was different back then. Like nowadays kids don't get as many offers because the the window of their recruitment is much smaller. You know, a lot of these kids are making decisions by the time they're juniors where they don't have the four, they're, they're not being necessarily recruited for four years. But Mark was one of those guys that 
just kept getting better and better. So more people jumped on his recruitment. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, he, he had his, his choice of schools and the Seton Hall staff just, you know, and again, the rules were different back then. There weren't the limitations. Nowadays, if there's a kid we, we want to see in his high school senior season, we can only see that kid play seven times. Seton Hall saw us play, to your point, we were, we were, we lost in the state finals down at Rutgers. Uh, every time I walk in the building, I remember a kid made a half court shot to beat us. I, every time I walk into the rack, I think about that night, but we probably played 30 games. Someone from Seton Hall staff was at every game. Now they had the advantage five minutes away and it was easy, but they, they just outworked everyone. And, you know, uh, and, and again, even Mark's high college career just progressively better and better and better and kept improving, kept getting better, kept getting hungrier, kept, I think, seeing success. And, and it kind of drove his work ethic. And, you know, obviously he's he's one of the all time greats in Seton Hall history. Well, the Pirates did turn that corner. The team starts winning, and now the attention starts shifting from all those iconic Big East coaches like Carnesecca, Thompson, Massimino. And now it's there. everyone's focusing on this fiery young coach that has all of a sudden made Seton Hall relevant again. What was it like working for PJ, and how did your relationship evolve over the time you coached with him? Yeah, he was terrific to work for. You know, he, he let you do your job. He didn't micromanage things. Every, he, he did a terrific job as a head coach and a leader of the program of delegating responsibilities. Everyone had their kind of lane to work in and, and there wasn't a lot of crossover. So it was, it was very simplistic in terms of everyone, you know, Bill Belichick, do your job. Everyone knew their job. Everyone had their job. Everyone knew their job and he put guys in position to do their strengths so that you know that that and that was something I really took from him when I became a head coach of just he just had a great sense of how to run a basketball program and he worried about what was important he didn't get sidetracked into things that didn't affect winning so that that was you know that was a big takeaway I had from him but now very easy to work for you know I think even like the players, I mean, again, he could be obviously extremely demanding and tough on the players, but, you know, they they never felt, and again, I can't speak for him, but I, I will speak for him, that I don't think the players ever felt they didn't know where they stood with him. And I, and I think players, they may not always like what you have to say as a coach, but if you're honest and you're consistent, I think players respect that and appreciate that. And he, he was honest and consistent. Uh, you, you knew, uh, you knew where you stood with PJ all the time. And there was never a, you know, walk out of practice. And eh, was it, was he on me today? Not on me. You, you, <laughs> bad. you knew well, where you stood. And you know what? And, and the kids who figured it out and the kids who bought into it and stayed for four years, all had great careers. And many of them played in the pros and had careers in basketball. So um, you know, it was uh, it was a great experience for me as a young guy working working with him. Some of his former players have been on and joked saying they didn't even know what their name was at certain points because they just had a blank in AG or a, what was Mark's? It was F and double O. So, uh, Bruce, did you have any nicknames for you? Nah, you know what? Like he, no, nah, he, I, 
we had a great, and again, you asked about, I, I have a good story to tell you in regard to that, that that's a funny story, but no, he, you know, he and I had a, a great working relationship because it, because again, to your point, I, I did all the scouting by probably my second or third year, we kind of changed it early on. It was, you know, each assistant had three or four and by, I don't know, I want to say my third year there, it changed to where I did all the scouts. And so, so my, my whole thing with him, it was just basketball. You know, we meet before practice. All right. What's what, what, what three or four sets are Georgetown running? What's their strengths? What's their weaknesses? What? So it was just, it was very black and white. And it was ba- it was all basketball, and and he was a huge game preparation. How we play in this you know this style against the, these guys? What do we need to do to win? So it, it, there there was always it was always basketball talk, which again helped me immensely as a young guy because I had to be able to go in his office with the door closed and talk the game to him and explain you know okay here here's what I've seen here's what we need to do win here are the matchups we need so yeah it was, it was you know for me as, as a young guy it was it was really a, a great learning environment as a, as a coach George Blaney's first year you know and I'm sure we'll get to that later but I, I I'm with George you know I work with George Blaney and we have a ESPN game coming up Bill Raftery comes to watch us practice you know as as most announcers will do the day before and, you know, he's watching practice, practice ends. We're all sitting there talking. George Blaney yells to one over to one of our managers, uh, kid Pete Marion, who was three years with us with, with PJ. And then, you know, he was a senior coach Blaney's year. And Pete comes running over and Pete knew Bill Rafter. And, and Raft looks at him, he goes, Pete. And, you know, Raft or Pete looks at him, he goes, yeah, coach, you know me, Pete. Pete. He goes, Pete. And he goes, yeah, coach, what, you know, you've known me for years. What, what's, what's your surprise? He goes, I thought your name was effing Pete because that's all. <laughs> and I, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. So just a, just a funny story. Oh, that, that's a good one. Uh, so going back to what I was going to ask, so that PJ kind of was more of a uh, delegator. Everybody kind of stayed in their lanes, not a lot of crossover. We've alluded to it before. You were the X's and O's guy, the, uh, the scout. Did you feel like you wish you would have had more of an opportunity to do some recruiting? That aspect of being an assistant coach. Yeah, you know, times are different than with just the way the rules were. The the two of the three assistants could recruit. One assistant could, and again, it's crazy as you look back, the NCAA rules, logic, thought process, which I, I don't know the answer to what the logic was. But yes, so one of the assistants on the staff could not recruit. And generally that guy was the, the coach that did all the scouting and ran the summer camp. Uh, so, and back then you could live scout. So we would, you know, two or three times a week, I'd be on the road going to see games live, but yeah, in, in retrospect, I, I, I definitely wish I, I had, I, I, when I was at Seton Hall, I had interviewed for the head coaching job at St. Peter's. And I remember that was a, you know, I, I thought I did well, but that was a big part of the interview them questioning me well how can you recruit yeah we know you're a great x and o guy and you do a lot of preparation and you're organized and blah 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 but you haven't done a lot of recruiting i was involved when kids would get to campus on their visits but in terms of being out on the road recruiting no so yeah i i definitely wish so because that that probably hindered me you know in terms of the potential to get other jobs uh as i was still at seton hall 
Now, you mentioned you spent the season with Coach Blaney. P.J. throws a curve to everybody. He leaves us for the Portland Trailblazers back in the day. It was probably too good an offer to, to say no to at that point. Did you have an opportunity to follow him when he ultimately left the program for the NBA? Initially, no. Um, you know, he. I remember he, he came back. It was probably... I don't know, a four or five day process where he was out there and, you know, meetings with the owners, the, the, just the hiring process per se. And I remember he, he came back to, you know, to, to school and to Jersey and met with each of us individually on the coaching staff and basically said, you know, him being a first time NBA coach, the organization, told him you have to hire all NBA guys. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the potential for a scouting position didn't work out that first year. It actually worked out the, the second year, or, you know, his second year in the NBA, I, I literally had just taken the job at Kane and had a press conference and called me the next day didn't know I had the press conference. Like I, I have a scouting job. And I was like, PJ, I just, I, I literally just had a, a press conference yesterday. For thanks, thanks for following my career still. <laughs> yeah. <Please>. So, <laughs> you know, timing is timing, but nah, it just, you know, and it, it made sense. And again, it, his staff in port, he had a big time staff. He hired of NBA, you know, Rick Carlisle was on his staff and Dick Harder, who, who just passed away, but was like an NBA legend and, Johnny Davis, who who would play in the NBA. So, I mean, you know, it's logical, you know, hadn't, hadn't coached in the NBA. It's such a different game that he had to surround himself with NBA guys. So, but fortunately, Coach Blaney kept me on staff. So, you know, I was still able to to be at Seton Hall for another year. Was that awkward being like the holdover regime, whole new staff? Not awkward, different, different. You know, I, I, I knew the guys that he – brought with him i mean one of them is greg horrenda who I, I work with now at fairly dickinson and the other guy was kenny williamson who i knew vaguely not great but no it was it wasn't awkward it 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 was different you know coach blaney and pj extremes you know in terms of temperament how they coached how they ran the program so it was just different uh you know coach blaney wanted me to stay because he, I think he saw the value and me knowing the league, knowing the school, knowing the players in our program. So I, I think he placed a high value on that, but uh, yeah, it, it was definitely different. It was, an, I think it was an adjustment for, you know, myself, for the incoming coaches, for the returning players. Um, Cause just, you know, every, every coach is different. Every coach handles things differently and manages their programs differently. So it was, it was an adjustment. So I'm going to, I want to rewind back into the timeline. I'm not going to let you just gloss over Seton Hall that quickly, obviously. So let's go back and talk about some of the great success the team had during the eight years that you and PJ were together. We're talking about seven postseasons, six NCAA tournament bids, two Big East tournament titles, two Big East regular season titles, and obviously the one magical run to the NCAA title game. Everybody wants to talk about the title game, but I, I want to ask a few different questions first. How was it to prepare a scout and scout the process of like the first game of a regional compared to the second game after you advanced, that's gotta be kind of night and day. No. Um, yeah. It, you know, the NCA, just the process itself for preparation is so different than the regular season. 
because you know you're, you're generally speaking you're playing a team that you haven't played before you know within the conference obviously you have a sense of who they are and what they do and you know you're playing them twice so the second game's a little easier you're 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 probably preparing for that second game in the conference based on a lot of the first game that you played but in the NCAA tournament you know you're you're sitting there Sunday night for us a couple of years we got deep in the Big East tournament you know won it twice so you're playing on Sunday you you know you're rushing back to school hoping there's not traffic in the Lincoln Tunnel and you can get back on campus and you're watching the you know uh, the selection show you know w- without the pressure of sweating it out but now it's more okay where where are we going to be seated where are we going to be going you know by 6 30 go where you're playing and who you're playing so and again to go back to everyone doing their job you know our administration would deal with the travel pj would do his media stuff that he had to deal with because you know we were big back then we we were we were the program in the state and and probably in the tri-state area so there'd be you know 20 or 30 reporters that he'd have to deal with and uh radio spots etc cetera, etc cetera. and i would you know go up to our video room and lock myself in there and you know four hours later i i would have watched two games and he and i would meet and have a feel for what we're doing and you know all right are we you know we know by then were we leaving on monday leaving on tuesday to wherever we had to go and by monday afternoon monday night i i would have been starting on our second opponent of just okay we you know we have the bracket in front of us we know you know we got two choices the next game and you know by Monday night, Tuesday morning, I, I would be pretty deep into one of those two games. And by Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd be into that second team. And, you know, we'd get to the site and, you know, I'd have three game, three teams that we were generally prepared for. And, and again, part of it, we, we were, we didn't play multiple defenses. We, we were a man to man team. We didn't really press. So we were simple in how we played. So it wasn't, you know, there weren't a thousand variables in the preparation. I mean, if you're a team that presses and you play two different zones and you, you know, back then there wasn't the influence of pick and roll like today. It was more patterns and specific, you know, play one was play one, play two was play two. Nowadays, everything, you know, there's there's 9,000 movements to get into the pick and roll. Um, so it's a, it a little bit of a different game, but um, yeah, it was, it was a, challenge, a challenging time, but you know, that was that kind of time of the year, like you just didn't get tired because it was just, it was just exciting. And, you know, I, I, I still get that feeling come March, you know, even though whatever it was 25, 30 years ago of like just the watching the selection show and kind of, you just knew what the night, the next couple of nights were in terms of the preparation. And, you know, and it, it, as a coach, it, it really kind of, I don't know. I just always had like a sense of like, here, here's when our job really matters because this this can be the difference in winning and losing. I want to go off on a tangent for a second. You mentioned in the scout that there's the unfamiliarity because you haven't played that team twice already for the season. Like you're prepping for that team in the Big East tournament. You kind of know who the team's go-to plays are. And because Seton Hall was going through some struggles towards the end of the season and playing teams a second time, that when they got to the NCAA tournament, that familiarity was probably going to be an advantage for them. 
because of a player like Romero Gill and his size or a dynamic offensive player like Miles Powell, that the other team's not chance to see them, only seeing them on film was going to be an advantage for Seton Hall. Do you agree with that philosophy? Yeah, no, that that's there's, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, uh, I can remember the year, I forget, I'm terrible with which year, I don't know if it was 92 or 93 when, when we lost to Michigan State. You know, and again, they were a terrific team. You know, we had them down. They ran a million sets. We knew what they were. We had a good game plan going in. And five minutes into the game, we were like, wow. Like, you, the things that you could not tell on tape jumped out off the screen. How fair, I remember Sean Respert was their point guard, playing the NBA for a while. And just the quickness that he had with the ball that you just couldn't see in video. So to your point, I mean, you know, you're watching and yeah, Romero Gill's a great shot blocker. He's a presence inside, but to you get into the game with him and you see how big and long he is. Um, yeah. Miles Powell, obviously terrific player, great coming off screens. And, you know, Kevin did a great job of getting him into different actions where he would catch the ball, but you know, till you get into the game and you, and you realize like, wow, kids, that kid's six, three and a half and he's strong and how quick his release is. So as much as you prepare, I think there are things that once you get to the game site and the game starts when again, you, you haven't seen that team live and in person and you, and you can't live scout now, now those things jump off the screen at you that, you kind of had a sense and you talk about it in your preparation, you show the video, but till the game starts, you don't really have that feel. So that, and that's part of the tournament, you know, where you get into the game and they throw it up. And then there's things that, you know, as, as prepared as you are, you don't know. And that's where, that's, that's where the great teams and the great coaches, you know, make the adjustments, the great players make the adjustments and you kind of just have to figure it out quickly because you only, you only have 40 minutes to figure it out or, or you're going home, obviously. So I want to go back to the 89 season. Here you are, you're in the West Regional and you're out coaching Bobby Knight. And then there's the quick turnaround and you're out coaching Jerry Cart Tarkanian. And then there's the final four and the 34 point swing and you're out coaching Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. Forget about making it to the title game. Is it just gratifying knowing that you did it against some of the all-time legendary coaches? Uh, that that year was incredible. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 final four run. Obviously, you're 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 playing against the icons in college basketball at that time, and and still today, you know, um, I mean it's amazing that Coach K is still coaching at the level he is still coaching at. How far ago that was at that game? But yeah, it was. It was amazing, and I forget the stat that year, but I, I think we that Final Four run. You know, if you if you think about it, and you look back to where it started the season in in Alaska, the Great Alaska Shootout. We we beat Kentucky and Kansas, who were you know two of the blue bloods of college basketball. I forget the stat that year when we had beaten St. John's. They were, uh, and still St. John's is like I think top five in wins all time. So you know we had beaten. St. John's, Kentucky, Kansas, you know, Indiana, Duke, Vegas. So now, nah, I mean, it's, it, it was a, you know, again, it was a special year in a million different ways, but yeah, to play against those coaches and those programs and, and to be successful was, was amazing to say the least. Now going back to that Duke game, Mike already mentioned the pirates were down big early and there's this infamous timeout early in the game where it appears 
pirates are going to get run out of the building. It's going to be, you know, we're leaving Seattle with our tails tucked. Was that moment during that timeout more of an X's and O adjustment or was it just a pure inspirational gut check? You know what? I, I'll go back prior to the timeout. And, and I remember, I remember after the season, they did a great video for us with just their season and recap. And I can, again, in my mind, I can remember it like it was yesterday maybe three minutes left in the first half. We were kind of making a little run. And, and again, I couldn't tell you who scored, but Gerald Green, our point guard, and I'm sure you guys have probably seen the video. We got fouled. He gets the guys together at the, at the time, at the free throw line, huddling up. And he literally goes up to, and he's screaming and yelling at literally each guy. And he's hitting guys in the chest and he, and he's done, and he kind of just walks away quick, quickly, like, you know, come on, let's go. Like, it was a great I – can, I can still see the moment of him on the court before it even got to the coaches of him just getting, come on, like, we're better than this. We, you know, we're tougher than this. We're this, we're that. And, and guys responded, and you could see the body language. No one had their head down. Guys were listening to him. But, yeah, I think that was one of PJ's – for for his emotional and when when he would when he would snap he you know he snap would the all time best and and lose his mind but in moments like that he he did a phenomenal job of keeping his poise and not getting rattled and not overreacting not changing how we played you know we were who we were good bad or indifferent this was how we played and and you know it was the typical coach hey let's let's cut this to 15 by the 12 minute timeout let's get it to 10 or 11 at the eight minute timeout you know let's try to get into halftime 10 and under but yeah it was, it was more of just I think we knew we weren't going to play as poorly for the second half and they probably weren't going to play as well and we knew we were just a, a seasoned group, a tough physical group, a tough mental group, mentally tough, strong kids that have been through the battles. And, and just we just kept plugging away, you know, plugging away. And I, I think that was another, you know, kind of quietly where Andrew Gaze really helped us for a guy that just all his international experience, the Olympics, the whole, you know, just everything that he had participated in prior to Seton Hall and, and for him it was just you know it, it wasn't another game but it was another game and he another guy just poised and calm and collected and I think I think all of that just kind of rubbed off on everyone and then you know we go into halftime and it was halftime as usual all right here's here are the adjustments here's what we got to do better we knew we had good players that would play better we, we, you know, we came out well, a strong start at the second half and played well and just kind of wore Duke down. And, you know, those are, those are the moments, you know, we referred back to our 6 a.m. in September and October preseason conditioning in the rec center, running sprints on the track and going to lift before class of all, all the work then came back to, to benefit us. And, and obviously, you know, I, I still think it's probably the greatest point turnaround in NCAA history. Uh, I think it was a 35-point swing. Okay, Coach. 800-pound gorilla time. Let's set the stage for the title game. Johnny Morton standing on his head, keeping Seton Hall in with a fantastic Michigan team. We go into overtime. Now, back in Maplewood, 
We're all gathered at a friend's house. There's probably a good 20 people there, all sorts of Seton Hall graduates and friends. The foul gets called on Gerald Green. And everything goes silent because everyone at that living room is wondering, what did they just call? What what happened? So what was your reaction like when that foul was called? And what did you feel? You know, right away, my mindset, my mind went to, you know, what's his percentage at the foul line? How many timeouts do we have left? Just this situation, you know, because again, you know, as an, I think as an assistant, you have a different mindset as a head coach. As a head coach, you can scream and yell if you choose to and carry on. But as an assistant, it's more, hey, PJ, we have one timeout. You know, you're kind of reminding him of the timeout situation. You know, you're you're looking, and I knew just from our preparation, I knew that Ramil was not a good free throw shooter. He was probably at 58, 59%. So you're, you know, and again, you're, you're reminding guys with 39,000 people screaming and yelling. So it's not like they hear you, but you're reminding guys, Hey, you've got to box out. He's a bad free throw shooter. Um, so I think it's more just the situation. Um, I didn't realize, I guess the magnitude of the call. And again, as an assistant, you're, you're not standing up. So your vision's impaired. PJ would always stand up. So you can, you know, you're kind of seeing a game through where he's standing you know, that night at about two in the morning in the hotel, packing up for the flight home the next day, seeing the, seeing the call on Sports Center. Then, then he kind of realized the magnitude of the call. But I think in the moment it was more, you know, what's next? Again, time, score, situation. Uh, what what are we going to do from a basketball standpoint? Thirty nine thousand fans, fifty percent shooter, NCAA title on the line. Yeah, I think he's missing one of the two, also, Coach. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, to his credit, boy, you know, <laughs> he stepped up and calm as can be, and 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 drained him. And you know, it it is what it is. I mean, you know, you as a coach, again, you look at the things we could have done differently. You know, we were a terrific free throw shooting team that year, probably high seventies, and you know, just out of character for us, we missed free throws down the stretch, and and just didn't didn't do the things that we normally you know, had done well. And, you know, we make a couple more free throws and it's a different situation, but you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's basketball, that's sports. I mean. Yeah. No, no knock on Gerald green. I mean, he was a reason why the team got to where it got, but he hits that one and one on the front end. And that, that game's basically over at that point. Yeah. We, and we missed a handful. I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was, it was a collective effort of missing some free throws. Just again, just very uncharacteristic of our team and of our players and, you know, it just, it, it is what it is. But all that being said, you know, we still, you, you're still, you know, in a position to win the game in the last couple minutes. And it's, you know, it's it's still probably, you know, most, most NCAA final games, you know, two months later, you don't even remember who the team that lost was. I, I think we're probably still known as, you know, re- remembered as the team that lost that game. And obviously, you know, it was a controversial ending. Um, you know, I, I'd be, it'd be amazing to see that in today's world with Twitter and so forth of just what that would have been like uh, today. It, it got put out there the other, uh, about a month ago where they were showing like the worst calls in NCAA tournament history. And the younger fans are seeing that on Twitter going, no, that didn't happen. Right. And Tom and I are like, man, we got to relive this over and over again. It would have broken the internet. That's all I got to say. It would have broken the internet. Yeah, exactly. All right, so, exactly. So I want to dive a little deeper into the strategy of that game for a moment, and then, and then we can move on and get and get pain and the misery. But it seemed like Andrew Gaze was off. I mean, he had a 
phenomenal game for the ages against Duke and you know put the team on his back in the second half. But was he expending so much energy chasing Glenn Rice all around the court? Was there a thought to go with that matchup, or did the size of Michigan's front line basically dictate that assignment? Yeah, to a degree, their size uh, definitely dictated matchups. And, you know, Andrew was such a smart player that, you know, we, we felt he could defend Glenn Rice well. Not, not great, because obviously, you know, Glenn Rice was killing everyone in that, in that tournament run. So, I mean, he, he was a terrific player. But we, you know, Andrew, again, what we were saying before, you, you don't realize till you stand on the court next to him how big Andrew is. So we felt his length and just his his knowledge of the game and his understanding of his preparation with game plans that you know we 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 had a good matchup there and you know Glenn Rice had a, you you watch those clips he hit a lot of contested shots of just tough you know 17 18 footers you know the the mid range game that doesn't exist anymore he <laughs> he cleaned up it that night and you know uh, Andrew just didn't play well I mean you know again whatever we played that year 38 39 games it was it was clearly not one of his better moments but we're not getting to Seattle without Andrew oh of course not no 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 but yeah. Tom, Tom and I were debating I mean. Johnny Morton's having a game for the ages still has the all time record for most points scored in an NCAA title game at 35, but Andrew five shots. Was that more of a, like, Hey, you don't take the ball out of the hot or they just, they were kind of all over kind of scouting Andrew from the night before. I think both, you know, I think definitely they were focused on, on, you know, how important a component of our success Andrew was. And, and just there, there was an enormous focus from Michigan's, standpoint on him you know the the, the and again he didn't get open looks he didn't get anything easy they made him work for everything and the ball didn't go in for him that night but conversely yeah john was incredible i mean john john had a performance for the ages in that game and kept us in that game but you know we 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 weren't going to change how we played because Andrew wasn't making shots. We still, we, we were, and again, I, I go back that that was one of PJ's strengths of just, we knew who we were and we played to who we were every night. And, and obviously, I don't know, I think we won 31 games that year. So it, it clearly was the right approach just in that moment, you know, we didn't play our best, best basketball. Well, spectacular season. Nonetheless, South orange still gives us a parade it was a wonderful time to be local then. But the next season, Seton Hall brings in Terry DeHare from St. Anthony's, who was not really regarded as a big-time recruit coming out of high school. As a matter of fact, out of his own school, you had Bobby Hurley going to Duke. You had Jerry Walker, who went to Seton Hall as well. I mean, that potentially is the greatest high school basketball team of all time. But again, Terry was Terry was who he was. He was a, a, solid, a solid guard coming out of high school. At what point did you know he was going to be the offensive superstar for the next four years? Well, it's funny, you know, back then, and, and again, just a, a brief story to kind of start the, start the process with, with my answer. Back then, as an assistant, we used to be able to, and, and especially myself, because I, I didn't recruit in the summer, I would speak at a million high school basketball camps. And again, we were obviously a, a big well-known program so I, I would speak probably 40 or 50 camps a summer just guys I knew in New Jersey would call me up hey come speak at our camp and I went to speak at coach Hurley's camp in Jersey City um, he had a camp in their their old White Eagle Hall bingo 
gym and, you know, he, he'd have a hundred kids in there. And, you know, I, I, I did my presentation and we were, you know, he and I were talking and he, he points to a kid kind of on the side. He goes, that, that kid's going to be a pro. And he, he was a sophomore at the time. And I don't know, six feet weighed 140 pounds, but you could see just, you know, had, had obviously a great stroke and, you know, kept getting better and better and better. And, and recruiting was different back then. You know, there wasn't as much exposure for kids as there are today. And there weren't as many AU opportunities or camp opportunities. So Terry definitely was a little bit under the radar. Senior year in high school, he, you know, as you said, that team was arguably one of the best high school teams in the history of high school basketball throughout the country. And we knew we got to steal with Terry. I think, you know, we, we lost so much from that final four team that as a freshman, you know, he came in and obviously played right away and he, he was able to just figure it out in terms of what the next level of college basketball was. And, you know, we, we weren't great that year, obviously, but I think was a kind of just led to the, the amount of success that he had because he realized one, he had to get in the weight room and get stronger and he just had to adjust his game to the next level. And, you know, I, I think there were moments his freshman year where you could say, like, wow, like, as this kid gets better and we, we put better guys around him and we keep recruiting well, he's got a chance. I mean, did, did we, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say we, we all knew he'd be the Big East leading scorer and play in the NBA, but you could tell that he, he was pretty special. Now, we spent a lot of time this past season comparing and contrasting this past season's Seton Hall team with that 92-93 team, which was Terry's senior year. This past season, the offense was clearly designed to revolve around Miles Powell. I mean, Coach Willard went so far as saying he had a specific number in his head that Miles needed to get to every night because they were shooting for that all-time scoring uh, title. Now, going into Terry's senior year, he was on track to do just that. Was there any kind of special plan or strategy to get that ball into Terry's hands that year? I mean, that team seemed to have more proven scorers that year with, you know, your Jerry Walkers, your Arturis, even Brian <laughs> Caver to a certain extent. Yeah. But was there anything specifically designed around that? I mean, we, we would run specific sets within our offense to get Terry shots, 100%. I mean, there, there were, you know, we knew we had one of the best players in the country, you know, never mind the Big East, one of the best players in the country. So we were definitely had the mindset of, yeah, we have to get this guy. I don't think there was a number of shots, but we just knew that we had to get him the ball and he had to, to score. We ran a very simple offense. We weren't sophisticated in what we did. We PJ kind of had the old Vince Lombardi philosophy, uh, you know, Hey, great. You know what we're going to run. We, you know, we, Everyone in the country knew when we put a when when our point guard put his fist up in the air what the offense was. <laughs> and it was everyone knew it. It was simple. It was the old John Wooden UCLA offense. So obviously a pretty good offense. And you know it, that's just we, we just we were an execution team, and we 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 knew that Terry was the guy to get the ball to. So uh, you know Terry had a scoring mentality. He he developed. He he really became a great catch and shoot without a lot of space and time. He, he, he did a terrific amount of work on his footwork and his release. His body got better. 
um, stronger. He could he could kind of manage getting bumped around screens and held. So at the end of the day, yeah, we we I think we were a balanced team, but we still knew you know where our our bread and butter was, and that we had to go to that guy a lot. All right, coach. If you haven't picked up on it so far, I love the fact that you're an X's and O's guy, right? Tom, Tom's all about like the fandom and just getting into the flow. I love the minutia of everything that goes into the, the basketball game itself. I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of criticizing Kevin for not having the intricacies of the X's and O's. And Tom's like, get off of it already. My, but Mike likes I to got belittle my fandom here. He, he <laughs> likes to, he, Mike is a frustrated armchair quarterback. So, uh, so sorry, we, we just on different ends of the spectrum as to how we watch the game. That's what makes it good. Um, but I, I like the fact the coach is here. I want to dive into the nuggets of his scouting reports. I'm gonna we're gonna go down a, some sour moments here. Three game years in which Seton Hall bows out of the NCAA tournament. I want to know about those scouting reports. Let's start with 9091. Seton Hall's in the Elite Eight, and there's this juggernaut UNLV team across the way. I mean, how the heck do you even scout that team? I mean, you're looking at you're looking down the barrel at Larry Johnson, Stacey Ogman, Greg Anthony. After you watch the film, what do you go back and tell PJ? Ooh, <laughs> you're right. I mean, there's a lot of pros on that team. No, I mean, that, that was, wow, what a team. Uh, that was probably the only game in my nine years at Seton Hall where I felt we were at a physical disadvantage. You know, we weren't the stronger, quicker, tougher team than our opponents. And, uh, I mean, there, there were times in that game – we struggled to get the ball in bounds. Like literally we'd have the ball on a side out and, you know, for either out of a timeout, immediate timeout, or the ball got deflected out of a timeout. And three or four times we literally couldn't get the ball in bounds. You know, we'd, we'd run whatever our side out of bounds play and screen to get open. And it didn't matter what we did. They, it, it seemed like we were playing eight against five at times. They were just so, athletic and quick and long and aggressive so i mean i don't think anything surprised us going into that game it was more we just knew we knew we had to be really really special that night because i mean that that was probably one of the best college basketball teams in the last 50 years i'm probably gonna catch slack for the you know seton hall loses to unlv and it sets up an iconic game with duke rematching UNLV in the final four. So I know the Seton Hall fans wanted to win that, but I think the rest of college basketball probably wanted to see that rematch. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah, that, was, that was a terrific final four, but no, that was just a, a, a unique Vegas team. And, and obviously, you know, Tark was a great coach. They, they, they were a great defensive team. So, I mean, we knew going in, we would really, really have to have a, a special, special effort to beat them. And I, I think that's what every team they faced that year said. All right, so moving on, we fast forward now to the next season. It's 91-92. You actually run into Duke again this week 16. They got All-American Bobby Hurley at six foot. And here's kind of where I want to go into the scout. Brian Caver, 6'4". Brian averaged 30 minutes a game that year, his junior season. But freshman Danny Hurley, Bobby's brother, logged 18 minutes that day in a scoreless effort. Was that a scouting decision to play Danny as much as he did? Or was that a PJ in-game decision? No, more an in-game decision. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt that we played Danny Moore to try to get into Bobby's head. And, you know, Bobby was such a – Bobby was so tough mentally 
as a college player, nothing we were going to do was going to get into his head. Now, Bobby did not play well that game. I, I do remember that. But, you know, Brian had gotten into some foul trouble. You know, we got down. Danny obviously could score. You know, Danny was probably a, a more natural scorer than Brian was. Um, I mean, Brian was obviously a terrific player for us. But, um, no, nah, that was more just an in-game uh, decision, kind of flow of the game. But, again, another – you know, iconic team. That Duke team was so good. I mean, it's another one. You look at, in in retrospect, their roster, the pros that they had. And Grant, and I mean, Grant Hill doesn't get injured in the NBA. He he's a he's probably an all time great. Uh, Christian Leitner was one of the best college players in the history of college basketball. Bobby, top five point guard in the history of college basketball. You you, you have the best coach in college basketball arguably college basketball history. So, I mean, just another kind of iconic program. And it was just, it was a weird, just everything about it. That whole dynamic was weird. You know, the whole, the whole Bobby Danny thing, just a unique situation. And again, you know, we, we didn't play our best that night and Duke, Duke, Duke played really well. And, and, and Duke, Duke was a terrific team. And, you know, it just, it, it is what it is. You know, we, we didn't play our best when we needed to. And but for that life-threatening car accident, who knows how good Bobby could have been in the NBA? I mean, Bobby was big-time floor general stud. I mean, who knows how long he could have played in the NBA? Yeah, I think Bobby would have been a 15-year NBA player. I agree with you. You know, I don't think there was, in his day in college, a tougher, more competitive guy, a smarter guy. He would have figured out his niche in the NBA um, you know, I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I think he would have had a long and, and really successful NBA career. I mean, it was, it was obviously tragic, his accident, but you know, he's, he's obviously showing now, you know, at Arizona state, he, he's become a heck of a coach. And, you know, I, I think he would have been a heck of an NBA player if that didn't happen. All right. Last game, 92, 93, Tom hates when we have to go here, but we got to go here. Western Kentucky, you know, the, the team is kind of touted to have a potential final four run in them again. You know, we're, we're best in the Big East. Big East tournament champs just destroyed Syracuse by 30 that year in the title game. Were you guys expecting Memphis and Anthony Hardaway instead of West Kentucky? Was that part of the scout? Um, no, I, I wouldn't say we were expecting because, again, I think you just have to go in with the mindset of you have no control of who you're going to play in the next, next opponent, next round. So you just have to prepare for both. But, but that being said, we knew, you know, you, you had to watch one Western Kentucky video and, you know, 10 minutes in, you're saying, wow, like this team is really good, really well coached. As you look back, you know, it's funny. You always have that, that thought of, you know, and you hear at conference tournament time where is it better when you when you know you're in a tournament and you know you're gonna be a high seed, is it better to advance to the conference final and put all that energy and effort and, and emotional energy to win? Does that help you moving forward? And again, it, we're never gonna give that title back. I mean, to be like you said, to beat Syracuse at the garden by 30 is special. So we're, we're never, you would never say no to that, but yeah, you don't know in, in retrospect is, did that affect us going in? We, yeah, same thing. We just didn't, there was something missing that, that moment, that day, that, that tournament for us, we just weren't at our 
highest level of performance and 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 we ran up against a, a again a very well coached you know ralph wood was a heck of a coach uh i still remember kevin being on that team and you know it's kind of a backup point guard and um no they, they were a really good team and you know in the tournament as soon as the favorite gets down a little bit the whole arena starts pulling for the other team, you know, neutral site, it was down in Florida. So yeah, we had, we had fans there, but it wasn't like it was a packed, you know, half the building was for Seton Hall. So as soon as the underdog starts winning and getting, you know, a little bit of control of the game, the whole arena shifts to them. So, you know, just, again, it was just one of those. And, and, you know, we, we wish we had given our best effort and then see what the result is. You know, we didn't. We clearly didn't play our best basketball that day, and lost to a, a, a really good team. Unfortunately. Now you just said that maybe something was missing. I don't subscribe to this theory, but I'm just going to put it out there. People have said that Luther Wright should have had a bigger impact on that game since he's seven two, and their center was six seven. What did the scouting report say to you? Yeah, no, I mean, you, you you would think the answer is yes, more so from an offensive standpoint, because obviously. You know, they, they just on paper, you would think, yeah, they would struggle to to guard him in the low post. But again, Ralph Lord's good coach or was, was a good coach when he coached. So they they fronted Luther. They they defended him in different ways. They played some zone to take him out of the game. And and obviously, as you said, with, with a six, seven front court guy, tough matchup for Luther at the other end, who wasn't a mobile guy. You know, you, you needed to we always needed to find a matchup for him of a, of a true low post player. And they really didn't have a true low post player. So at times, you know, you, you, you have to manipulate your lineup and change your lineup. And again, we were kind of a, always a defensive oriented team with PJ. So a lot of our decision-making in terms of minutes and, and playing time were based on matchups and how we guarded people. So, you know, I was just, I was a tough game for him. Just, uh, it's it's you see it now you know it's it's difficult for for big guys to play the the court is so spread and and ralph willard again had worked for patino back in the day so he kind of had a similar mentality spread the court three-point shooters spacing you know that's that's a tough way for a 7-2 guy to play in that game a lot so we we kind of downsized and went smaller and you know, I went back and watched that game film, man. There was a lot of pace in that game, too. I mean, yes. they were running up and down. That was not a game suited for Luther. I kind of, you know, compare it a lot to when Seton Hall played Wofford, right? That was a bunch yeah. of small guys. They had a six, seven power forward that was giving them fits the entire night because guys like Sandro and Romaro Gill just, they were taking them out to the three point line. It just, I thought he should have adjusted, which as the team made their comeback in the second half, they made the comeback without Luther, but people kind of, latch on to these narratives over the years. And that's all you kind of hear about 20, 30 years later. Yeah. Again, it's a game of matchups and it's style, you know, stylistically. No, you're right. I remember watching that game, the second half, we, we had played in the NCAA that year when, when, when Seton Hall played Wofford and we, we lost, we were out in Utah and we, so obviously time difference, we got back to the hotel, getting a bite to eat and, and watching the games and, I kind of had a similar, it's funny you say that because I was watching it and kind of had a similar flashback to that, to the Western Kentucky of just small, undersized, really skilled space 
shoot the ball extremely well. The crowd, as soon as they started making threes, the crowd jumped on board them. So now you're, you're kind of playing the game. You know, you're expected to win. You're expected to survive and move on to the next round. And now the crowd's into the game against you guys. So it, it, I, I had a lot of similar thoughts that night of kind of a little bit of flashbacks to that. Now, Coach, we spent a lot of time here today talking about Seton Hall, but you've had a lot of experience in your 35-plus years of coaching. And as a matter of fact, if we were going to hand out nicknames, I think it'd be safe to call you Mr. New Jersey because you've been up and down the turnpike and the parkway quite a bit uh, during your career. You know, after starting off at your hometown, Columbia High School as an assistant, you've made stops at Trenton State or the former Trenton State. I prefer that name to the College of New Jersey. And after you spent your time with the Pirates, you spent 11 seasons at Kane University. Now, again, I'm almost, I was about to call it Kane College because, you know, that's the old time name for it. But it, you were a coach, head coach at your alma mater. It was a D3 school. 2005, you won the ECAC tournament champs. What were your experiences like running your own program by then? Yeah, it was terrific. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed my, my time there and, and and enjoyed running my own program, you know, just to see what you can do and, and kind of figure it out for yourself. And it, it's always, you know, it, it's always said, but, you know, that that adjustment moving, you know, everyone says moving 12 inches over to becoming a head coach from an assistant is much. And I think I, I was really prepared for it. But you get there and you realize you're not prepared for it because every every day is new. You know, every every experience is a new experience. Every decision you're making is on you now. You know, for two years at Trenton State with Kevin Bannon, I'm making suggestions. PJ, I'm making suggestions. George Blaney, I'm making suggestions. Now I'm making decisions. And also with a staff, I mean, I had great assistance, but at the D3 level, your assistants are part-time. So, you know, I'm literally sitting in my office going through the day and I'd be on the phone with those guys or text them, you know, Hey, what do you think of this? But at the end of the day, you're making your own decisions. So you, you really had to be thoughtful and, and kind of just very intentional in what your, your beliefs were. The good thing at that level is you can you can make mistakes where you're not being judged and looked at as as severely as you are at the D1 level. There, there's less obviously outside interest in the program, um, so you you can experiment a little bit. It's it's kind of like a laboratory to figure out you know what works, and you know it, it definitely took me a couple of years to establish kind of the culture and the environment of our program and to 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 get the kids that I wanted. Cause I started there really late. I, I was back for my second year with coach Blaney. I didn't get that job till probably late September. They had a late change with, with the previous coach. And uh, we were, we were starting like preseason workouts at Seton Hall and we were probably a good month into school when it, when this happened. So I, I, I think I got the job literally like four days before practice started. So, you know, I didn't know any of the players there you know, have a meeting and, you know, they were kind of excited to Seton Hall assistant. And at that time, the, the NJAC was probably the best D3 league in the country. So, you know, I walked in, no, I knew what I was walking into and it took us a couple of years to kind of establish things, but yeah, it was a great, just a great learning experience. I, I always, when I see kids or speak to guys and I always think about it, I wish I could coach that team and those teams now. Cause I know I, I would be a much better coach 
today as a head coach than I was back then, just based on the people I've worked with and experiences and just seeing the game differently and maturing. But yeah, it was, it was terrific. I mean, at the end of the day, there's so many college basketball coaches that never get the opportunity to be a head coach and to be able to be a head coach where I went to college in the state that I grew up where, where all my contacts and connections were and arguably the best league. I mean, we used to call it, this was the big, the big East of division three, you know, just every game was a battle and toughness and, you know, all the coaches knew each other, all the kids played against each other in AAU and summer league. So there was a lot of familiarity with, with everyone. So you know, it, it, it so reminded me of the Big East at a D3 level. But, yeah, it was it was a great experience. Well, in your tours of New Jersey, you also had stops at Caldwell College and St. Peter's. But then what I found interesting was you were also an assistant coach on the New York Liberty. Now, so describe the difference between coaching the men's game and the women's game. Not a lot of difference. You know, the bigger difference was coaching at the professional level. Uh, at the end of the day, I think, and I, and I talked to a couple women's head coaches that I'm friends with who used to be coaching on the men's side. Uh, I talked to three or four people before I chose to take the position of of asking that question of, you know, what what is the difference? And to a person, they said it, and, and I say it to people now, there's really not a lot of difference. The, the players want to know, are you going to make them better? Are you competent? Are you sincere? Are you honest? Are you, are you loyal? Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. it. It gave me a different look at basketball, you know, shorter shot clock. Everything was pick and roll oriented. It was the NBA at, a, at, at, the, at the women's level. You know, just the game was different. Um, the schedule much different, much more compact. So you had you had to practice differently. It, it, I mean, for 50 reasons, it made me a better coach, you know, just seeing the game differently the ability to connect with players at a different level. That, that was a part I really enjoyed. Cause you know, I went from a young guy who I wanted to coach cause I love basketball and I love working with players and just being in the gym with them. You become a head coach, you lose some of that because your day is tied up with other things that you're not always with the players in practice. You're, you're the bad guy. You're the guy, you know, pulling a kid out or saying he can't get minutes or he's not playing as much or not getting shots. So your perspective changes as a head coach. And I think at times you lose a lot of the basic level of why you got into coaching when you're running a program. And so for me, it was great going back as an assistant after, after 11 years as a head coach, it just, you know, prior to practice, getting in the gym with a, with a player and working on her game for a half hour where it was literally just, Hey, you know, here's where we're going to work on today. You know, get a good sweat in with them, and you're you're re- rebounding and running around chasing the ball and trying to make them better and develop them. So it 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 was it was a really good two years. I, I really enjoyed it. it. It was really cool as a Jersey kid growing up to be a Knicks fan that we played at the Garden. I mean, he's a Knicks fan, Tom. He's a Knicks fan. <laughs> well, yes. we'll, we'll edit that right out. Don't worry. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's been a challenging, challenging run to be a Knicks fan. I'll tell you that. A challenging few decades. It's now, always coach. been Jeez. challenging to be a Knicks fan. Come yeah, on. No, it is. It is. But I, I, I but can't watch really his last cool. dance stuff and watch Jordan and everybody else just dunk it on Ewing. And yeah, oh, yeah. No, but it, it was a cool part of just being at the garden for our games and like the place where as a little kid, you know, 
once every couple of years I'd get to go to a game and, you know, there's just something about the garden. You walk in and there, there is the mystique and kind of the aura to the place that, you know, wow, like this is, this is where, you know, for two years I was working was, was pretty special. All right. So as Tom mentions, Caldwell College, St. Peter's, and now your current destination, Fairleigh Dickinson, assistant coach under Craig Horenda. But the first two seasons were clearly a rebuilding effort, 10 and 21 and 13 and 14, 8 and 21 in 14 and 15. We already talked about the uh, the bright spot in the 13, 14 season of knocking off Rutgers and, and Seton Hall. But other than that, there, there wasn't a lot of other things to kind of hang your hat on. How difficult was it? Or challenging was it to go through that rebuilding process while the losses are piling up? It, it, it was difficult, um, no question. You know, you you have a vision of where you want it to go, and and more importantly, what you think it can become. I, I think we felt that, you know, kind of a sleeping giant a little bit. You know, they they had had success. They were very good back in the '80s with Tom Green there. And, you know, we used to play him at Seton Hall when I was an assistant at Seton Hall, and they were good. He had really good players there, and, and they would make deep runs into the NEC tournament every year and go go to the NCAA tournament occasionally. So I think we knew that there was potential. Um, we we just we kind of just had to get our kind of guys in there and, and, and just change the culture and change the environment of the program. Um there were, there were a lot of things that we we had encountered when we got there that we just had to improve upon, you know, be it facilities, be it the academic side of things, the recruiting, the player development, the the strength and conditioning program. So, I mean, we, we just had to kind of overtake the program and just make it better. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can't change it overnight. And, you know, I think as, as all coaches, we're not – generally patient people, you know, you want things to happen quicker than they can. But at the end of the day, you, you realize, you know, there's, there's a process to this and you, you can't skip steps with it. And if you take the shortcuts, they are going to come back to, to kind of haunt you. So I, I think we've kind of progressively, you know, made, made our steps. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we, we've gone to tournament two, two years and two and five years, which at our level doesn't really happen a lot. So you know, I, I, I think we're, we're in a good place. Um, you know, I, I think there, there's a lot of stability and, and in our program, we, you know, we, we lost two seniors this year, one of which didn't really play a lot. So, you know, we, we basically, I think, I think I saw, I think we returned 81% of our minutes and points from last year. So, you know, and that, that's it, at this level, I think every level, but more so the, the lower levels, it's about getting guys to be juniors and seniors that just are experienced and have gone through the battles and, and figured out what college basketball is about and have improved. So we're, you know, we're optimistic going into next year. But yeah, it's, it, it's you know, it takes time, you know, to, to turn things around. And again, I go back to the, the, the early years with PJ, where we had to turn things around and change the culture and change the program and change the level of kids in the program from a ability standpoint and, and, and the work ethic and the strength and conditioning. So I kind of have been there and, you know, and again, as an assistant, I'm just making, making suggestions and I'm giving ideas, but you know, I've experienced it before. That's what makes it more satisfying when you finally get there and have the success, you, you realize it, it kind of paid off. 
Yeah, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. We're talking about it. It's a process, but here in year three, the 15-16 season, you're making the NCAA tournament. So normally when you've only won 19 games and lost 42 in the first two years, you're not expected to go to the dance the following year. So team loses, unfortunately, to Florida Gulf Coast in the first or the first four matchup, a 16-16 matchup. You go back a couple years later, you actually win the first round matchup against Prairie View, and you ultimately go on to lose to Gonzaga in the first round. People have said that the games at the first four are quite the experience. Describe atmosphere in Dayton on the opening night of the NCAA tournament. Terrific. I mean, it's amazing the job they do. And and to, to your point, like I, I can, and I've said this to people, because we we, the first year we went, Greg, and I, I don't remember the school, he reached out to someone in our league that had gone in the past to the first four just to kind of get a feel and what you take. And I remember him, us talking, and he said, yeah, the guy was, wasn't real high on it, just didn't think it was a good experience. And, boy, was he wrong. I mean, you, you, know, you, you get into town, you pull up to the hotel, there's a, a welcoming committee. The, the Chamber of Commerce in Dayton does an unbelievable job of just making you feel – like you're in a regional Sweet 16 environment. You walk into the hotel, the, the, the lobby has pictures and logos, and uh, you, know, you, you go to practice, there's a police escort on the bus. You, you, get, you get to the game, you're playing, you know, we're playing Florida Gulf Coast, five minutes into the game, the place is sold out and just jumping and just a terrific atmosphere. And again, I, I have a, you know, an experience prior to FDU, you know, six years at Seton Hall and one year at St. Peter's going to the tournament and it matches any of those, you know, experiences. Dayton is a phenomenal basketball town. Obviously they had a terrific year this year. It's a, it's a great building to play in and uh, it's, it's as good an atmosphere as any first round atmosphere I played in, in those seven prior years at different NCAA first round sites now off off the charts oh i'm a i'm a short conference kid back back when i grew up in right so i remember monmouth making the ncaa tournament you know Corey albano john Giralda, and they got seated as high as a 13 that year but the nec has changed over the years now i'm going back and doing my research and the last seven years the NEC tournament champ has been designated for the four. Is there a sense of frustration knowing that even if you win the conference tournament, you make the NCAA probably destined to play in that first four matchup? I think there's more frustration probably in the league office where, where they, they take it probably a little more personally that it's, you know, we're being kind of looked down upon as always being in that first four game. As a coach, I have the total opposite feeling based on the two years at FDU, you're playing a game that you can win. And the first night, you know, if you're playing that first night in the first four, you know, the whole world wants to see the final four. They just want to see the experience. So you're getting unbelievable exposure on national TV. You're the only game being played that night. So there's not, you know, it's not like the first weekend you're, you know, you're three minutes on CBS and then you're switching to TNT and, you're finding on your cable where is true TV that no one knows about, but you're finding that. <laughs> but here, it's you're you're the only game in town, and you have a chance to win. 
Now, the first year we played Florida Gulf Coast, they were totally Yeah, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty, Coach. No, they were terrific. I mean, they they were misseeded. There was no way they were a 16 seed. They they were 12 or 13 seed. But you legitimately have a chance to win with the whole country watching. So, to me, I don't know. I I, I think it's phenomenal. Because, again, do you want to be thrown into the bracket right off the bat you're playing a one c you're we played gonzaga our last run in the second round if you're not in that first four you know you're playing one of the four best teams in the country on the road with no chance to win legitimately so at least you have a chance to win that first round game and again not that we weren't disappointed losing to gonzaga but no one in our program is looking at the tournaments talking about the Gonzaga game. Everyone's talking about winning with the opportunity to play Gonzaga. So now I'm, I'm a big proponent of the first four. See, I can't still wrap my head around you calling the chip versus Gonzaga. The second to me, that that's still the first round. There's the first four and, and then we're in the first round. There's no second round. My, stuff. Mike yeah. Light's taking a wind out of everyone's sails. Don't listen to him. Uh, for us, it was the second game. So maybe I, I phrased it correctly, but the second game in the tournament, because again, at our level, most people aren't getting an opportunity to play a second NCAA tournament game. So yeah, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of uh, the whole first four experience. They, they, they do a great job with it. They count it as a win. It's a win for all I'm concerned. Exactly. So we've gone over your career, your coaching career, and it's predominantly been in the state of New Jersey. Now, has this been by choice or is this just kind of the way the ball bounced? Um, Probably choice, but, you know, again, retrospect, if I had to go back, I I would probably change things. I, I was really spoiled at Seton Hall in the sense of we were really good, obviously top 10, top 15 program in the country, you know, five minutes away from where I grew up, the, the place I used to sneak into as a little kid. And I, I probably didn't look for enough opportunities to leave and, and, and to your earlier question to get recruiting experience. You know, I, I had, I had a couple opportunities that I, um, that I didn't take, you know, for, for the mindset of, and, and kind of what we were just talking about, you know, it's, it's amazing your perspective of, well, okay. Am I, do I want to go to this place where a good year is they win 18, 19 games and they go to a tournament and they're a 16 seed and they play us or they play Kentucky or they play Duke and they lose by 40 and your year's over as opposed to we go to a final four national championship. We go to a sweet 16 against Duke. We go to an elite eight. Like that can be who we are on a, on a yearly basis. And I, I think all of us, you know, we're, as coaches, you're competitive and you want to do it at the highest level possible. And uh, so I, I kind of had that mindset of why am I going to leave a really good situation at Seton Hall to go to a low, a lower level. Now, again, retrospect. Yeah, I probably should have it probably would have uh, given me different opportunities, but that being said, I don't look back with, with any regret. I mean, the, the time I had it at Seton Hall was, was obviously a really special time and, uh, I cherish those moments uh, at, a, at a really high level. Well, Coach, before we let our guests leave, we make them walk the plank. We're going to ask you five rapid-fire questions. We're expecting five rapid-fire answers. Don't think too much. Just let the first thing off the top of your head come out. You think you're ready? I'm going to give it my best shot. I hope so. All right, here we go. All right, question number one. Greatest win as a coach? 
Probably the Duke game, just because of the situation. Biggest rival team? Probably Georgetown. Biggest rival coach? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know if I can answer it. The coach, I'm going to give you guys too long an answer and you want, but I mean, you look at those coaches, they're all Hall of Fame coaches. So every night it was such a, such a challenge. Uh, that will, I don't know if I could answer that. That's a tough one. Maybe, maybe give me a sixth question. I don't know if I have an answer for that one. Toughest road environment? Carry Dome by far. Best SHU player you've ever seen play? Ooh. Oh, oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Probably just for what he did, Terry DeHair, just the, the level that he achieved when the Big East was so good, you know, uh, I, probably Terry. I'm going to give you a chance to make up the coach's question here. Bonus question. Any three coaches, past or present, to have dinner with, who's at your t- table? That's a great question. Um, wow. Larry Brown, Pat Riley, Brad Stevens. Congratulations, so, so- Coach. You've walked the plank. So we ask who his biggest rival is, and he goes, I'll give you a chance to make it up. He doesn't mention one of the Big East coaches <laughs> in any of the three at the table. I'm trying more current. <laughs> no, you're right. But, you, know, you know what? It's funny because those guys, you're around them so much, and you, I knew so much about them where, yeah, I guess my answer is, you know, like Pat Riley, Larry Brown, always for a young guy, kind of mystique to them that you didn't know about. and. I've become a huge Brad C. No, but I, I, I could, I could tell you John Thompson and Bayheim. No, I don't want to hear Bayheim. Leave them up in, leave them up in upstate New York. We don't need those guys anymore. I'm not saying they're, I'm not saying they're good stories, but uh, exactly. Well, Coach, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here. We appreciate all your stories and your wealth of knowledge, and we wish you nothing but the best. No, thank you. It was great to be with you guys. Really uh, a lot of great memories and really enjoyed this. No, lots of fun on my end too. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you. Bruce Hamburger, everybody. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcast with former Pirate greats, Mark Bryant, Kadeen Carrington, Arturis Karnishevis, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, this is Mike Dizzy Dizzy, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank you.